0: I think that when you look at it, this is almost an example of DeFi imitating TradFi, and it's going further and further in that direction with the key difference being that the layering of these DAOs and sub DAOs is meant almost like a corporate structure that allows for isolation across different geographic regions.
1: Hello, and welcome to The Crypto Brief, a podcast from the Fidelity Center for Applied Technology. Every week, we get together to discuss current events and trends in blockchain technology, tokenization, DeFi, NFTs, mining, and related aspects of the crypto ecosystem. I'm your co-host, Ryan Stubbe, Director of Bitcoin Mining, and I'm joined by Jason Ward, Head of the Blockchain Incubator, Parth Gargava, product architect with Fidelity Labs, and Jack Newrider, research analyst with Fidelity Digital Assets. Before we begin, just a friendly reminder that this discussion is for educational purposes only and should not be viewed as an investment advice or a recommendation for any security or asset. The views expressed are those of the co-hosts and not necessarily those of Fidelity Investments or its affiliates. As we all know, crypto as an asset class is highly volatile, can become a liquid at any time, and is only for those investors with high risk tolerance
2: hey guys how are you doing well how about yourself parth doing great i just uh, came back from Asheville.
0: uh you're the second person in the past week that's just come back from Asheville. uh what's it like down there
2: what's the draw it's it's really nice it's the it's the south and it's just so culturally different um i would say from from the northeast i um I rode a horse. I was in a hot air balloon, uh, did a bunch of things, which uh, you can typically not do in the Northeast. So that was fun. I feel like uh, if I if I don't do something which has uh, some sort of adrenaline rush uh, component involved once in a month, I just feel really bored. And so maybe that's why we're all in crypto, but uh, it was a fun trip. I, I hate to break it to you, part, but Jack, uh, verify this for me, but we do have horses and hot air balloons in the Northeast. <laughs>
0: Um, But Parth, I'd love to hear about what you tried and then uh, see how that compares to what I had to try.
2: I I would actually put you and Jack on the spot because typically I do the last week I tried section, but I know you guys have had some uh, fun experiences with lawnmowers. Uh, Jack, what did you try last week?
3: You know, it's a bear market when uh, the last week I tried turns into uh, (laughs) lawnmower issues. (laughs) Well, no, me, me and Jason and Parth were talking before we got on here. And it came up that me and Jason both had lawnmower incidents. So I ran over a dog toy in the backyard. I saw it happening in real time, closed my eyes and hoped for the best and then heard noises that were not the best uh, and had to play surgeon underneath the lawnmower and hope that it didn't fall on me. And luckily was able to uh, fix the issues and finished mowing my lawn. But what about Jason? Jason, you had a s- different issue, but similar concept
0: yeah so for the second time in three weeks I took my lawnmower apart uh thankfully it's not a a huge one so I don't have to worry about it It crushing me but um took it apart piece by piece uh had to fix some belts um put things back together good news is it's working
2: I guess I guess that makes me the only person who did something crypto related (laughs) over the weekend so if you are in any sort of crypto circle by now there's a good possibility that you might have heard of uh friend Tech so maybe the three of us could spend some time dissecting it. We don't want to spend a lot of time because we have a lot of big stories to cover. But uh, Jason, Jack, do you think it's a good idea to just talk about what it is, uh, how good or bad it is?
3: Yeah. And and Parth, I think you're the person with the, mo- the deepest understanding and most experience here. So maybe you give listeners uh, <laughs> an overview. I don't know if it's
2: a compliment. I I don't know if it was a compliment or something else, but (laughs) no. Uh, So Frentech is this social tokenization platform that lets you invest in uh, Twitter personalities by investing in their shares on the application. So if Jack is a content creator, I can buy Jack shares and then sell them. And so Frentech's adoption has obviously gone viral. That's exactly why (laughs) we're talking about it in the first place. But I personally feel like at this point, crypto has just gotten boring and there's not much for people to do. And that's why you see like a lot of these meme coins or applications make multi-millions in the, in the last few weeks. Uh, that's kind of one reason of the virality. And
3: similar in concept to BitClout, right? Which was sort of a fad for a period of time and then fizzled yeah.
2: out. So maybe what I can do is I can tell you. Uh, why I used it just for a few minutes and then I stopped using it right after. <laughs> right. So I, I did use it for a, for the first few minutes, but then I, I saw the privacy policy, which is basically none. And um, so that that was one reason which kind of freaked me out. Uh, FrenTech can post or retweet on your behalf. It has no privacy policy. Uh, the second part is that they generate the private key for you on the application, which is always a big red flag. So if I'm sending money to their generated wallet and if I'm linking my Twitter handle, everybody knows who I am and what my wallet transactions are. So that's like a double whammy, like a double red flag. And the third part is that I'm not even sure why people like it. Cause the UX is terrible. It's almost like using a 2009 iPhone application. So me personally, I'm, I'm staying away from it, but it's a fun trend, which may or may not go away. Uh, but, uh, it's fun to see what people, think about uh, of friend tech
0: so part i when you first described it first of all i in my mind i started joking like friendtech tech uh not too long ago was a phone call but here we have an application and you're you're working on this what i what i was wondering was uh, what is the market is this trying to take advantage of reputation markets it was is that sort of the play
2: yeah so it's almost the way they kind of the the market proposition is that if you If you think about Mr. Beast, who's this big content creator, if I got in early and if I got in to know Mr. Beast early, what's the upside for me after he reaches a million followers? So it's almost like you are betting on the reputation of a content creator and the earlier you find them, the the better it is. But, uh, it kind of gets pretty tricky in the, in the compliance ways of things because they are legit calling it shares. So it's a Jason share or Jack share. Now I think they rebranded it to keys, but uh, I, I don't know. It's just, uh, it. there might be some enforcement in the future. I'm personally staying out.
0: Yeah, so putting putting that aside, because none of us are, are lawyers, but you sit there and say there's some red flags on how it's distributed, but also the privacy aspect. It's kind of crazy to think that somebody could tweet on your behalf, or uh, is it called Zeet now? <laughs> Keep me honest. <laughs> Like, they could just do that on your behalf, and you not have the opportunity to approve that. Yeah, exactly.
3: The Like, uh, Web3 social platforms also, I feel like have always just been a struggle. Yeah. right. Because, like you said, the UI, UI UX on all of this stuff is poor. But then, like, just building network effects in this space when, like, what percentage of the population even interacts with crypto, it's like. You know, sub yeah, sub five percent on somewhat of a regular basis. Right.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, no. things bot farms, right? Like this is encouraging bot farms.
2: Yeah, exactly. No, it's a it's a fun application, the, but the like, Jack, going back to your point, the UI UX of crypto in general is really bad, but this takes it up another level. It took me a while to actually understand how it works. So uh, but I, I, I do want to make sure that we focus on uh, the the other stories because I so maybe let's switch gears here. I'm kind of playing a uh, Ryan's role here. I do miss Ryan in these kind of moments, but um, Jason, I know you were looking into Tornado Cash and the developers getting arrested. Could you talk more about it?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, listeners may remember we've been talking about Tornado Cash for some time, and uh, Tornado Cash was a uh, a mixing protocol that was used by people in the digital asset space in order to increase privacy. It turns out that many believe that also through the increased privacy, people were able to utilize the tool for illicit purposes. And two of the three founders have been named in a uh, Department of Justice lawsuit in charged with laundering uh, billions of dollars by operating an unregistered money transmitter business. So um, Roman Storm and Roman Semenov have been named in the suit. Uh, A third founder, Alexey Pertsev, has been charged in the Netherlands, but he's not been mentioned in the DOJ suit. But, you know, and I was was getting some information from Ryan about this particular uh, suit. And it it seems that the allegations, the founders played a role in the unlicensed money transmission, but their roles in developing the network were specific to development of the anonymizing software and that was used for the transfer. The development may not be what they're in trouble for. It's the operating of the uh, non-registered money transmitter uh, business or activities that seems to be the real issue. And um, OFAC has claimed that tornado cash was used to launder billions of dollars in criminal proceeds, including uh, some by the Lazarus Group, which is an infamous North Korean hacking group. And when I think about some of the earlier stories that we had related to tornado cash, It represented the first time that OFAC had sanctioned and added software to the SDN list, meaning the use of software, uh, this particular software for uh, transmitting purposes, was deemed um, illegal. And you may remember we saw some dust attacks and people trying to promote the fact that you might receive an asset that has gone through a mixer through no intention of your own. And it just presents different challenges. But here, uh, the story is about the two founders being charged with this money laundering activity. Uh, it's a pretty serious, pretty serious uh, set of charges. Yeah, I, I mean, I obviously
3: gets at the idea that this is uh, simply technology, right? And the whole idea that like the internet is just a technology, and there are obviously a number of uses that everyday people have that is uh, not illegal, and that like the vast majority of uses, and then there are you know criminals that can use the internet, and I think the same argument can be made on blockchains. And then if you go a layer deeper here, we're talking about specifically like the right to privacy within financial transactions, and should people by default be able to have privacy on these permissionless blockchains that are that's just a technology? That's like the ultimate question here,
0: Right. right. I mean i think you're you're spot on the question is what was the intent you know and this is a personal perspective so not certainly not a legal opinion but um you know oftentimes there's there are memes but reality is that there are five dollar wrench attacks that happen in crypto or have happened in crypto in terms of physical but the producer of the wrench didn't mean it for that use so you know some people may argue that was the case with the the mixer that it's intended to uh, increase privacy but the, the producer of the wrench doesn't have control over how it's used, doesn't necessarily mean that they didn't. Uh, they're not completely removed from from some responsibility. I I don't know. This can be a very interesting one to watch. Yeah. it gets
2: uh, I, yeah, it gets really tricky because I I remember early on when I started my like crypto dev journey. I remember Roman Storm, one of the developers who built Tornado Cash, just gave tutorials on Solidity. This was maybe in. 2016 or 17 at some East Denver or some conference. But it's it's interesting to see that how people who just built this tool are are getting arrested versus someone who actually used it for for wrong purposes.
0: Yeah, and it may very well be both. So um, but yeah, this in on one hand, you say code is law. And we know that's not actually true, but it's talking about automation of functions. Um, you know, people have a lot of skills, and how yeah. those skills get put to use um, in developing technologies is one thing um, that that they may not control. Maybe they have influence, maybe they don't. But
3: yeah, so we we already kind of have this playing out in in existence. Um, but do you think that as we move forward, like there is a quote unquote, dark market of coins that have been mixed on, you know, whatever wasabi wallets and uh, and tornado Samurai. cash on ETH, right? Yeah. For Bitcoin, wasabi wallets, or what is it, Samurai? Um, and then once you do that, like, you can't then send those assets to a, a regulated custodian because they'll flag them, right? Or at least if they're following the rule you know, the rules that are set by regulators, they'll flag them. Uh, you have this, like, again, bifurcated market of a dark market and then, like, clean coins that are pseudonymous on chain, but able to be easily traced if, like, a regulator saw tokens were used for an illicit activity and then they could trace them back to, you know, the original, uh, exchange that those coins were bought at and, and who owns them. Do you think that, like, that's just going to continue into the future? Uh, especially if, like, Uh, regulators move forward with these kinds of charges against developers that are creating uh, some of these systems.
2: I feel like if one thing we have seen in crypto is that there is a marketplace for like every single thing. So I almost imagine a marketplace for something like this. Maybe not,
0: right? Like maybe over time, there's a process in which some of these assets are then deemed um, appropriate for use by non-sanctioned entities. Again, I think about when the government has sales of assets that they've seized through some criminal activity and they, they put them back out into the market. So I, I used to question this one a lot. I would think about you have tainted coin and you have untainted coin. And I, I thought that the untainted should trade at a premium, again, personal perspective, um, but it seems like that's not the case. And, and maybe in, in time that that does shake out, but been talking about that type of dual market or dual uh, perspectives now, uh, personally, probably for the last seven years. And I have yet to see it really come into play. Doesn't mean that it it won't eventually. I mean, seven years is nothing. It feels like, you know, five lifetimes in crypto. But in terms of regular markets, it's not it's barely registering on a a longer term trend.
3: And one of the problems and this is where I see like issues with potentially DeFi scaling uh, in a regulatory compliant way is like right now if you're an average user interacting with certain DeFi protocols like they're not screening to make sure that assets didn't go through tornado cash right it's just yeah. the protocol is agnostic to those tokens and so then if you're like a large allocator that needs to make sure that you're you know dotting your t's crossing your or your I's, crossing your T's, uh, whatever the saying is, uh, if you're being extra careful to make sure that when you need to, you can put those assets onto a centralized exchange and liquidate them into fiat currency, if that's like the, the ultimate goal here, um, like, you, you can't even interact with these protocols right so then that necessarily limits the amount of liquidity the amount of volume that can go through these pools and then if you say okay well then to scale the industry up we're going to have these uh permissioned pools right and they, we've seen them in like small pockets of borrowing and lending pools and, and decentralized exchanges but like i've never seen them like truly at scale yep. and so then institutions like true institutional allocators can't really out uh, like Inter interact with a lot of these protocols. That's like one of the biggest issues that I see is like the industry being able to scale, interacting with, you know, this opaque regulatory environment. At some point, push comes to shove and we're going to find out what happens, but is it that everything lives in its own silos and then there's the the good and the bad market in the eyes of regulators? Like that seems like the path that we're headed on, but like Jason, like you mentioned, maybe it's not.
2: Maybe this is a good segue to MakerDAO and the endgame plan, and I'll explain how that's kind of tied in. So the Tornado Cash sanctions obviously came out of nowhere, right, without any sort of prior knowledge, uh, and it hit the DeFi ecosystem hard. And Jack, going back to your point about institutions or like retail money coming into DeFi, uh, the founder of MakerDAO, Rune, uh, suggested that, hey, this is a wake up call uh, to the consequences of not picking one route or one of the two paths, right? So he believes that there are two paths only. One is the path of compliance, where you wait for favorable policies by nation states, uh, you look for favorable enforcement. And the second path is of decentralization, which is what I personally lean towards more, which means that how can I make a stable coin robust enough that it's not dependent on nation policies or foreign policies? And so to go towards the path of decentralization, MakerDAO, which is this huge um, DeFi project, they came up with something, something called as the end game plan. Uh, so maybe we could dive deep into the end game plan. Um, it does sound like a scary word, but it's just this document which aims to make Maker uh, intrinsically resilient so that Maker can deliver on this promise of creating an unbiased uh, digital currency, which is DAI. So regardless of how external factors p- uh, play out, you want to build this robust programmatic digital currency. Uh, and so maybe just to give a quick recap, MakerDAO has two active tokens. The first one is Dai, which uh, is a stablecoin that has been softly pegged with one dollar, one US dollar. The second is the MKR token or the Maker token, which is a governance token for MakerDAO. So users can mint Dai, by depositing collateral assets into different maker walls vaults. So here's something where I kind of need uh, your perspective on, but from my analysis, MakerDAO has two big problems uh, and which is why they have the end game coming in. The first is the reliance on RWAs or real world assets. So I know we have spoken about this a lot. One of the main things that maker pioneered is the use of RWAs or real world assets. So before RWAs, users could just deposit eth or any sort of crypto and mint dai but to diversify collateral and reduce systemic risk uh in case any of these crypto goes down to zero they introduced rwas right and so maybe jack i know you you spent a lot of time in rwas what's your uh definition of rwas and jason happy i'd love for you to also uh tell me what you think
3: yeah so i mean uh, real world asset being i mean like the like the name says uh it's within crypto the idea that you can have a a claim to something that lives in the real world a piece of real estate alone yeah. um in theory and equity even though that doesn't you know it doesn't happen at the moment and the the problem that you end up running into there which part you were you mentioned is that there is now the interaction of uh, things that are inherently like digitally native and ruled by code and smart contract law, and then like the real world, which has like judges, right? That that ultimately like rule of law versus like a consensus rule of law versus a consensus like code, uh, and and you have the interaction of the two. And so I always like to say is like real world assets are are going to require like. Uh, more regulatory clarity because who's to say that like your token that is the claim on that piece of real estate or that loan actually is a claim on that until like a judge and like actual law in place says that it is.
0: Yeah. I, I think you're, I, I like the way you described it, Jack. And when I try to simplify this, I think about property rights. And when you think about these assets that are, now referred to as real-world assets as opposed to just assets, there are government jurisdictions that have property right rules and enforcement. And they may vary for the same asset across the world in different places. So I think that's an interesting um, dynamic. But the real-world assets often have value, but maybe not as much utility. And I think about a home, for example, a home has utility and value. You, but you think about um, something like uh, a treasury bond. It has value, it has utility, because you can use it to, to pledge as collateral or use it to, for financing transactions. Yeah. But what I, what I think about in terms of Maker in the introduction of real-world asset collateral, it's helped to, I'll say, dampen the volatility Associated with the collateral
2: backing the stablecoin,
0: yes. So it's had a positive function
2: there. So, so you're absolutely right. Like RWAs, uh, real world assets, they have uh, a ton of benefits in the DeFi ecosystem, just because you can now diversify the collateral. But there is one big downside, right? And the downside is that these investments are based on traditional finance systems, where regulators have the ability to take down or regulate the operations of a crypto project, right? So when Rune, the founder of MakerDAO talks about reducing RWA exposure, he implies reducing the investments or the collateral that is seizable by the regulators. So reducing this attack vector would make MakerDAO more resilient. That's what he believes. And that's actually the, the basis for the, the end game plan. That's one part of it. So when you think about RWAs, like even uh, USDC is is an RWA, and that's packing more than 40% of the DAI supply. So that already to me is like an exposed uh, surface. Um, so any any comments here?
3: Yeah, we've, I mean, we've, I think, said the phrase before of like half of die is like kind of just like a wrapped stable coin. Yeah. Right.
2: And and, because, and that's a big and that's,
3: But that's ultimately been what's allowed it to scale and be stable. Yes. Right, so scalability and then stability of this, like I, for anybody that's like kind of macro, you have like this idea of the euro dollar market, which is uh, synthetic, like dollars that are created outside of uh, the, like the U.S., um, where there's some sort of underpinning collateral to those dollars but it's not uh, a dollar and so like in the in this instance uh, you have stable coins that are being used to mint you know a portion of these DAI stable tokens. then you also have like eth and other real world asset collateral that's like kind of like a this like euro dollar that's being created where there's underpinning collateral but that collateral is not necessarily a dollar. But in order to like scale and add stability, they have added dollars yes. into the picture to make it more stable, which has helped. But then to your point, like the issue becomes if regulators step in, right? Yes. The decentralization element is lost. And then you can start to ask the question of like, well, what's the whole point of this
2: in the first place? Exactly, and so, so j- exactly how you summarized it. So we want to take the path of decentralization, but at the same time, you want to diversify your collateral. That's why you bought in RWAs. But then those are seizable. So that's one part of the problem, which is why they had the end game. And the second is voter apathy or just the lack of interest by token holders to vote on important governance issues. And so there are two big reasons on why we have so much voter apathy within MakerDAO. One is on how frequently they used to vote. right? in fact, uh, I remember one of the inner jokes was that like every time you have to go to the restroom, you have to put an on chain vote uh, and then get it passed. And so like it tells you about how frequently they would have these on chain voting mechanisms, uh, which frankly, a lot of people did not care about. Um, and then the second was the complexity of the votes. So the role of token holders was a running a DAO, uh, approving budgets, performance bonuses, all sorts of random stuff. And so imagine a company of 50,000 employees where every person has a vote on every single big decision, which is ridiculous, right? That's not that's not how society works. So even proposals which needed wide consensus, only a few voters would show up. And so that was one of the the second bigger problem, uh, which is why you have the end game plan. So it's voter apathy and just reliance on RWA's. Um, any comments on, on voting? Because I know, Jason, you've, you've looked into electronic voting in the past.
0: Yeah, I would say voting in general uh, for things like proxies it can be difficult to get a quorum. And in the Trad5 space, whether it's mutual funds or company stock, whatever, they spend a lot of money trying to get people to vote. They can't complete the activities that they're voting on uh, unless they have a quorum. So it's not unreasonable to see the parallel. I do think it's a little bit different because you talked about frequency. I would say frequency and ease. And if if you're able to make this process uh a better user experience and articulate the benefits or the trade-offs the pros and cons of each particular vote you may get some more engagement but i think apathy is a good term for it because you know i i also think right or wrong people often buy a token uh or choose to to become a member of a community because they they're either looking for that um that potential return or they have a belief in what the the token represented, and they may not be monitoring. You know, it's it's more of a, a, a set it and forget it
2: type of mentality. Yes. And so in the similar vein, one solution that they came across was the idea of having delegates, which allows token holders to delegate votes to an entity that they trust or an entity that is being paid to spend their time in the community and participate in forums. But in spite of, so like for someone like me, I actually don't have time to vote on each governance forum, and I have a few delegates uh, for different topics. Um, and but even in spite of that, uh, you were saying that it's not getting a lot of traction. So now I want to quickly talk about the end game, but because I I know we we are kind of running short of time, I I do want to say that this is a super complex topic, and so even if you understand fifty percent of it, that's honestly that's a <laughs> that's a big win because it it it's this is like a twenty-eight page document took a lot of time. I kind of felt like I dug my own grave when I signed up to talk about the end game plan. But um, what I like about the end game is that it acknowledges the problems with the current structure. But what's really important here is that it kind of gives you a glimpse of the future of DAOs, right? So that's why I think it's important to pay attention. So DAO in the end game intends to be somewhat similar to alphabet. Which is the parent company of Google, DeepMind, Nest, Google X. So almost like the subsidiary model, where the idea is to break the DAO up into further sub DAOs, which have complete autonomy on what they want. And so that's one like big part of it. So what the endgame plan is: step one, rebrand Maker and have a new governance token and a new stablecoin. So that's gonna. And the reason why they want to launch new tokens is to have farming rewards and also incentivizing people in the long term to vote. The second, like I spoke about the subsidiary model is the idea of sub DAOs. So much of the complexity of the maker uh, will be delegated to sub DAOs like business units, kind of like how we have business units in the corporate structure. And so one sub DAO will manage facilitation. One will be directed towards RWA's. The other would talk about performance reviews. And then there are obviously, step three is more AI tooling. To have a, a better UX for voting in general. So that's kind of the, the three main steps. It's obviously a more complex topic. We'll need a special episode to just talk about Maker now. But uh what do you what do you think? I think their core idea is how can I incentivize people in the long term to vote uh consistently?
3: Yeah, it's interesting. The only thing that I like can't uh can't help thinking of is just the fact that like you said it yourself of we're trying to replicate things where there's like subsidiaries that are running themselves that roll up to like one larger conglomerate how is it like what are we creating that's new right it's a stakeholder mechanism where you have maker tokens to vote google stock just as the example only reason why we're using it uh same idea if you own stake and the company versus if you don't stick in the doubt, like structurally it's, I just don't see like a ton of innovation.
2: I, I think you kind like of that. missed the most important point here, which is the point of decentralization though. Like anyone can now, you, you can't just have any person like an average go- Joe vote into Google's decisions, but here you can, I think that's kind of the core difference. I, I don't know. <laughs> I yeah. like, I, I agree with you that it's more, it's less innovation, but it's more about uh, the ability for any person who is willing to contribute to have a say in this process. It's all, to me, it's almost like creating a new, I don't know, a new nation state or a new corporate altogether. And now they're trying to figure out what's the best, best way to govern it.
0: Well, I I think that when you look at it, this is almost an example of uh, DeFi imitating TradFi. And it's going further and further in that direction with the key difference being that the layering of these DAOs and sub-DAOs is meant almost like uh, a corporate structure that allows for isolation across different geographic regions. Because I think the intent here, as I read it, was one of the the goals is to ensure that there is resiliency in some resistance to regulatory actions that could be deemed um, unfair. And I'm saying unfair through the eyes of a maker or a die holder, not an opinion on any action that could or could not be taken yet. Uh, And I sound very political here, so forgive me. But I I think the the action is really about the the intent. And if if I remember back, this is one of the first DAOs, the intention was to show a high, the highest possible degree of decentralization or it said otherwise, distance the founders from control of the product, the project and really turn it over to the community. So I think that's the intent. Ultimately, the the degree of participation from the community may vary, and for the reasons that you talked about, like delegates, etc., whoever's making contributions. So um, I don't want to call it a decentralized um, or the demonstration of decentralization. I think we have to see how it really unfolds. And when I heard Endgame at first, I was like, "Oh, they're wrapping up." No, it's an end state, like where they want to get to.
2: Yeah, so. and this is a multi-year process. Uh, but I, I do want to quickly talk about how. 'Cause I, I do agree with Jack in that you haven't seen a lot of innovation in DAO governance. But if you think about how I remember in the history of Maker, like early on, the way decision making used to work was that they used to have these open calls and like yeah. any random person could just go and veto any proposal and that's it. That's the end. That's how they used to govern.
0: And they would adjust the interest rate on, you know, like the supply on DAI through these votes. Yeah. And it was you yeah. know yeah. What were they promising, like 19, 20% interest at one point in time or?
2: Yeah, it, it wasn't this high, but yeah, close to 10%. Right now it's like 8% with the DSR. But again, it's I it, it does warrant for like a special episode on just DAOs and DAO governance, because I do feel like this this technology is pretty unique. And uh, for a lot of times, like NFTs were around in 2016, 2017, but it took four or five years for them to be kind of the main story of the bull run. And I, I do feel like some of these technologies may develop the narrative for for future bull runs. I'm not saying DAOs will, but I, my, my personal opinion is that it could be one of them. So it, it does like warrant a, a good discussion. But Go I, I, I kind of knew that I shot myself in the foot uh, when I decided to talk about the end game here, so.
0: <laughs> well, I, I think you, you had a great uh, great highlight in that we can have a, a deeper dive into DAOs. And uh, who knows, maybe for that one, we'll be able to find somebody who is, uh, in addition to yourself is actively contributing to DAOs and and studying the space in depth. All right, as always, it's great uh, great to catch up, a good way to start the week.
4: Crypto as an asset class is highly volatile, can become illiquid at any time, and is for investors with a high risk tolerance. Crypto may also be more susceptible to market manipulation than securities. Crypto is not insured by the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation or the Securities Investor Protection Corporation. Investors in crypto do not benefit from the same regulatory protections applicable to registered securities. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. This podcast was produced by the Fidelity Center for Applied Technology, also known as FCAT. FCAT does not offer digital assets nor provide clearing or custody of such assets. It is for informational purposes only and is not intended to provide tax, legal, insurance, or investment advice and should not be construed as an offer to sell, a solicitation of an offer to buy, or a recommendation for any security or other asset by any Fidelity entity or third party. Views expressed are as of the date indicated, based on the information available at the time, and may change based on market or other conditions. Unless otherwise noted, the opinions provided are those of the authors and not necessarily those of Fidelity Investments or its affiliates. Fidelity does not assume any duty to update any of the information. Fidelity and any other third parties mentioned in the podcast are independent entities and are not affiliated. Mentioning them does not suggest a recommendation or endorsement by Fidelity. This information is not intended for distribution to or use by any person or entity in any jurisdiction or country where such distribution or use would be contrary to local law or regulation. Persons accessing this information are required to inform themselves about and observe such restrictions. Third-party trademarks appearing herein are the property of their respective owners. All others are the property of FMR LLC. Copyright 2023 FMR LLC, all rights reserved. 1040156.